Hey, Justin. Hello. Happy birthday. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I am having a pandemic birthday, as you have already done. Right. So does that mean you're going to go to Chuck E. Cheese, get a pizza, go somewhere with a cake? What's the plan? I mean, my plan was to touch every uh, crosswalk button with my bare hand, open doors, and uh, pretend everything was normal, though. I, I wanted to do stuff. You know, I actually had high hopes for, like, maybe even testing out indoor dining in the city. <gasps> and, uh, you know... That ain't happening. No, no, it's illegal now. I know. It's, it's like, a crime. It's it's a classic pandemic birthday. Hello, people. This is the Extra Spicy Podcast. I'm Justin Phillips. And I'm Solejo. On this episode, we speak with Virgie Tovar, author and host of the Rebel Eaters Podcast. Every single person has the right relationship to food. Because every single person eats in a way that is entirely intuitive to, like, their environment. Virgie's really cool. She tells us all about her work as a fat activist, about fat phobia in the way we talk about food, and also what it means to be food positive. You think that we're food positive, just being food writers, and that's our job, but, like, there's a lot more to it. And it's very interesting how... You know, the whole journey of fat phobia is a lot more than just feeling bad or, you know, being bullied or whatever. It's a systemic thing, it's a social thing, and she really breaks it down for us. So for listeners who haven't heard Rebel Eaters Club, which I hope will be a diminishing number after this show, can you describe what the podcast is about? And I know that you, I think you just finished your first season, right? Yeah, we just finished the first season and we're deep, deep in production for season two, which I'm really excited about. And it'll be, it will be coming out in January uh, of next year, 2021. Um, so the podcast is, I guess like the way that I would describe it is it's a food positive, body positive podcast that helps people break up with diet culture one corn dog at a time. Um, I think like the I think the the my real hope with the podcast <laughs> was to sort of interrogate why our cultural relationship to food is so characterized by anxiety and terror and fear and control. And very rarely is food just joyful and connective and fun, which is kind of what food is inherently sort of meant to be and is. Uh, and so, I mean, the show is really, in some ways, the exploration of this question that I've had for such a long time. And I came into it. I mean, it's interesting, right? Like at this point in my career, it's been about, I've been doing this work for a little, uh, close to a decade. And for a long time, I was really focused on the body, right? Like how we think of our body, how our body is constructed and seen in society, um, how weight is part of understanding the body and, you know, weight stigma and, and fat phobia. And then it wasn't until really recently that I started getting interested in really talking about food because in so many ways, I don't, I mean, I know this is going to go against what most people inherently understand, but I don't see the conversation around weight as the same conversation is around food and people in their minds, it's completely connected. 
in my mind, I'm like, people have different bodies, largely because of genetics. And a lot of people really believe that, you know, a person's relationship to food determines their body size. So in that way, it's funny that I've been doing this work for so long from the perspective of body image and, and body politics. And then food was almost like chapter 17 after like eight years of doing this work, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, where is your mind on food now? Like, what do you think of it? And what does it mean to be food positive? Yeah, I mean, okay, so I want to take the, I think it's easier for me to answer what does it mean to be food positive. For me, it means, I mean, it kind of is in the name, right? Like, essentially, I do not, first of all, I don't engage in food moralizing, which is um, a very common cultural thing, right, where we put one type of food in the good category and another type of food in the bad category. So I don't engage in that. That binary does not exist in my vocabulary, in my mind, right? So like all food is good food. It, you start there. Um, and then I think in general, right, like understanding in our culture, food is understand understood primarily, I would say, particularly among people, like if you're talking about people of color, if you're talking about working class people, this culture understands the conversation about food as one of risk and one of like potential harm. And I absolutely refuse to engage in that. Essentially, right, we live in a culture with a lot of injustice, a lot of injustice. In cultures with a lot of racism, a lot of sexism, a lot of injustice, um, they have populations of people who have heart disease. They have populations of people where, you know, like major organs are failing before they should, um, right, before old age. Um, I do not see that as caused by how someone eats. And I know, I mean, like, and I think about the research I've done, like, you know, the Centers for Disease Control, I would argue, doesn't even see it that way, right? Like, um, but people don't, people really do see food as this thing that can make or break their health and their longevity. And at the end of the day, that just isn't, that just isn't the case. And it's really controversial to make that statement. But essentially, right, like, in conclusion about the food positivity piece is like, every single person has the right relationship to food, because every single person eats in a way that is entirely intuitive to like their environment. And so I think certainly when you get into diet culture, you're getting into a potentially disordered relationship to food, definitely probably most like, yeah, most likely a disordered relationship to food. Um, but in general, I do think I do trust people to feed themselves. I trust people. I, I think people need to trust their own hunger and their own desire and their own appetite. And I think they need to lean into the fun and let go of the sense of control and fear and anxiety uh, around food. So that's kind of what that means to me. In terms of where I'm at, I can never stop looking at issues from sort of a sociological perspective. And so it's interesting to me, like I was just having a conversation with a colleague who does food studies and we were talking about how, um, you know, she does a lot of work uh, with like within the black community around food pedagogy and, and food knowledge and gardening. And she was saying that one of the things that comes up over and over when she tells people she does this work is that people presume that she does something around diabetes and how frustrating it is mm. to only ever think about like the black community through the lens of 
chronic illness or disease when the conversation of food or gardening or interacting with, you know, like food sources is concerned. Um, so when I think about food, I think about issues like that where, and it goes back to that broader anxiety and that broader sense of control and really surveillance. I have a huge issue and I feel like consistently aware of how surveilled I feel and how surveilled people's food systems are. If, you're, if you are not like a wealthy, thin, white person, your food system is being surveilled, essentially. And I think that that's really, I mean, I know it's really damaging and it's really harmful. And, um, and I hate the association between food and and illness and food and, you know, potential chronic like disease. Right. And as a fat person, as a fat woman, and as a person of color, I am living at the intersections of people presuming how I eat people presuming how long I will live people presuming how I will die with like with complete impunity, you know, like with a, with a true sense of self-righteousness. Hmm. Um, and so it's interesting, right? Like I'll post on Instagram, something about food, something about me enjoying food. And immediately, like, I'll get comments that are about my death. And so I am deeply aware of like how people not only see the connections between my body, how I eat and my life and my and my longevity, but also people want me to become a cautionary tale. Because the idea that I, as a fat woman Mm -hmm. of color, could like have a positive, restorative, beautiful, intuitive, pleasure-driven relationship to food is extraordinarily threatening to everything the system is telling us about people like me. I think this is really interesting because a lot of this seems to be, and let me know if this seems ridiculous, but it feels like the just world fallacy at work. You know, where like people who make bad choices are punished for those choices. And that's how the world is supposed to be. You know, this is like a evidence of of righteousness, like you're saying, and justice. Yeah. Whereas I think that's part of the surveillance, right? Like people are monitoring the choices that you are making or people who, you know, don't look like them are making and seeing like, well, see, that's why they have this or this is why they're going to die yes. because they made this choice and I'm not making that choice. Yes. Does that seem right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one really poignant example of this, I was just thinking about this the other day, um, is how whenever either in like films or shows, um, or even sometimes on the news, when a fat person or a fat character, a fat celebrity dies, often their cause of death is not discussed or explained. And it's Mm. never met with surprise. And then when thin people die earlier than they're supposed to, according to like maybe statistics or or whatever, um, there is a sense of surprise. There's a sense of shock. There's usually a pretty thorough explanation of what happened, the cause of death. And, And it's astonishing to sort of see that bias at work. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there are so many ways that people use food as a way to manage anxiety about mortality, about ill health, and and the true arbitrariness of those things. And I I think it has everything to do, like diet culture, and which is so connected to food surveillance and, and, you know, food control and whatnot, um, is so connected to the the bootstrapping and the sort of the, the, the really intense focus on the individual 
that is so such a part of the of the bedrock of American ideology. So of course, like right, like if you were to look at a person's life, um, the first thing that you would probably do, like you know, if you were if we didn't, I mean, like the first thing that you would do, let's say, if you were really interested in scientifically examining someone's overall health, the first thing that you would do is you would actually look at their environment and their childhood. Do they have access to medical care? Do they have access to transportation? Did they grow up with trauma? Do they have a family member in prison? Are they in prison? You know, like you would look at all of these things first. Um, They would tell you a lot more about that person um, how long they're going to live, what they're going to struggle with, right? Like they would tell you so much more than, than if you looked at what they ate, right? And, and yet we just cannot, we just can't imagine it, right? Because we as a culture don't have a framework in which our society takes responsibility, in which our government takes responsibility for its citizens and their wellness. I want to sort of extend this and ask if you have noticed a similar sort of phenomenon where people, especially in the food media, and I'm thinking especially in terms of the publications that I've written for, I'm sure you've written for, where fatness and diet culture and discussion of fat phobia is limited to the personal essay and not really to the systemic issues that you're talking about. Mm. You know, often it is <laughs> a very um you know subjective discussion about this one person's neuroses and their struggle and what have you and that's kind of where it ends and then of course <laughs> the publication will will publish a story about like light recipes for the weeknight you know yeah. I, I yeah. i'm curious if you've seen this and also just what you think about that framing yeah no absolutely i mean it's i mean it's i feel like i i noticed this phenomenon first as a woman author and then second as a fat author. Um, I mean, it became really evident to me. I mean, I came into feminism before I came into any critical understanding of like bodies or even food. Um, and I, I remember that sense, that sort of sense that I that publishers wanted to shoehorn me into writing personal essays that weren't about how my experience was indicative of a systemic thing, but rather, you know, this is just my story. That's all. I, I'm not being political. I'm just telling a story, which of course is apolitical, right? Like theoretically, it's apolitical. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I absolutely see it, the same thing happening around um, fat representation or discussions of body diversity. And, and I, it absolutely has everything to do with this idea that you can sort of put, you know, almost like a disclaimer at the top that says, I am not saying that this is indicative of a social problem. I am not saying, and, and, I, and I really think like, you know, you go back to, for instance, the medical model or like even the model for therapy, which is really focused on the individual deviation from, which sort of silently conveys the message that everything's pretty okay. And if you're, if you're not thriving, it's because you're maladjusted or you went through a unique experience. Mm-hmm. And, and absolutely that, that kind of that, that rugged individualism that is really cornerstone to the ideology of the country has everything to do with that, right? Like there's not room to critique, there's not room to imagine. And I think, you know, and this is a little bit, this is probably more of a parenthetical, but like one of the things that really has blown my mind is that, you know, there are things in this country 
that are considered in the realm of like absurd radical anarchist socialism, right? That like every other country in the Western world just considers inalienable. <laughs> and it's kind of mind boggling. So it's always fascinating to me where I'm like, the bar is just so low. It's, it's kind of like mind blowing, but um, yeah, but absolutely that kind of push to sort of, to sort of like, and, and I think again, for me, I experienced it so much sort of as a, as an act of misogyny where like, I have, you have to declaw me before you can even hear me. And what is mm. that? Yeah. That like, don't worry. I'm not a threat to the system. I'm just going to tell you a story about like a horrible thing that happened to me that is completely systemically promoted. And then how I overcame it. You know, it's just like, what? I don't know. I think, I think there is a level of absurdity at this point where I'm just like, girl, you're not fooling anybody, but apparently I'm wrong. I don't know. It keeps happening, right? Yeah. And it's how do you overcome a systemic issue short of revolution? Right? I know. I know exactly. I'm like, the solution, like people are always talking about how people need more empathy. I'm like, I don't know that empathy is the answer. I think we just need justice. I mean, if you have more justice, <laughs> less work for you. You don't have to spend all those hours meditating, doing empathy work, going to the Zoom workshops, doing the Instagram lives. I've done it, right? Like, guess what? If there's just more justice, everybody just has to do less empathy work. And how amazing is that? <laughs> You're listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. We'll be right back after the break. You can support this podcast and the newsroom that creates it by subscribing to the San Francisco Chronicle at sfchronicle.com slash pod. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm Solejo, and we're back with Virgie Tovar, author and host of the Rebel Eaters Club podcast. To zoom out a little bit from the individual, you know, I, as someone in the media and someone who writes about food, I have a little bit more of a bird's eye view and a little bit more of an impact in what I do in food media to talk about food and talk about fat phobia. Mm. But to go beyond the personal, what are ways that in which like food media as a whole or media, I guess, if you want to speak to that, can start to eliminate that systemic fat phobia in our work? A really simple way to begin is actually to think of, of this, right? A fat person is not a failed thin person. So like, I, you know, one of the things I've, I noticed in, in my work is that people always want to try to explain or understand if someone isn't a thin person. And that belief is part of fat phobia. That's part of bias. So, you know, th this idea, this desire to like, be like, well, you know, what did they do or how did they become this way? Um, we, we don't do that with thin people. And that's an example of, you know, how I, how we know that it's a form of bigotry because, you know, it, it's a double standard, right? Like imagine a world in which on the news every day, you know, someone was trying to explain 
like having an interview with a thin person and was like, well, when did you start struggling with your weight? Like, did you, you know, how, how long have you been this size? Um, what happened to you that this, ha that you became this size? Um, like, imagine that, like, I think like what's really helpful is like, you know, the litmus test of like, would I be talking about a thin person this way? If the answer is no, mm -hmm. then don't do that. Um, but I think that the framework of the <laughs> of fatness as like evidence of a deviation or an illness is deeply problematic. Like it needs to go. Like there are people like every kind of body is totally fine. Every body shape is totally fine. Like you, you do not get to have access to a person's private life and attempting to understand um, you know, why they are a certain size. You can just like stop worrying about that. Um, I think that's a huge thing. I think another thing is it goes back to food moralizing. In our culture, there are food, the foods that are considered bad are the foods that are connected in the culture's mind with weight gain. So when we moralize food and we use that kind of like language, that sort of biblical language of like evil, innocent, you know, guilty pleasure, like we use that sort of quasi religious language. And um, we are perpetuating that that fat phobia, we actually can, again, totally take that off the table and create like new language that's, in my opinion, like could be celebratory and interesting than having the sort of archaic biblical referencing when we're talking about food. Um, I think another thing really has to do with like, uh, I, I think about going back to the body diversity piece. Um, I have an amazing colleague who has made this video called like the trouble with poodle science, I think it's called. And she explains that, right? Like, <laughs> if you think about people the way that you think about dogs, right? You're like, okay, like you wouldn't, you, you're not like every single dog should be, you know, either is a poodle or is a failed poodle. And instead, it's like, no, oh this is a chihuahua, God. and this is a St. Bernard, and this is a greyhound, and this is a Doberman Pinscher. <laughs> like, right? And, like, we understand that, like, they all have these different bodies. They have different strengths. They have different weaknesses, right? Like, you don't task a German Shepherd with the task of a Dachshund and vice versa, um, you know? And, and, like, there are different risk factors. <laughs> And there are different protective factors. Like, and when you kind of like look at people through the lens of like, you know, you're not a failed poodle or a great poodle. You're actually not even a poodle at all, right? It's a little bit of a cutesy way, but I just, I just love that reframe so much. Um, if we stopped looking at people through the lens of like, there's only one kind of person and every, the one kind of right body or right person and everyone else is just a failed version of that if we stop looking at it that way and kind of use our use our like knowledge of the of the diversity of the animal kingdom for instance um it, it's like a really fun way to kind of reimagine like you know the strengths that people have and and like the natural the naturalness of body diversity um so i think that's really important on the topic of body diversity, it strikes me that I never, you know, like cooking videos are so popular right now, but you never, and like mukbang, you know, do you know what that is? No, tell me. Okay, so it's this genre of like TikTok or YouTube video where someone is just sitting, like the camera is looking right at them and someone is sitting at a table and just eating like more, like just tons of food or like they're eating like a, a plate of fries and it's 
almost like an ASMR thing where you're hearing yeah, yeah, yeah. very closely the sound of them yes. chewing on the fries, which I find really repugnant. I hate the sound of chewing, but personally, <laughs> uh, I don't want to have a kink shame though. I mean, whatever. You can do whatever you want. But mukbang, you never see, it's always thin people. You know what I mean? Yes. You never see a fat person eating food on camera and like being celebrated for it necessarily. I mean, yeah. maybe... Maybe there are a few men out there who can, but largely I would I, I can't even name a single fat woman who would do such a thing and not be trolled into oblivion, you know? Yes. Um, and we we do that in food media where we don't put people in front of the camera who aren't thin, um, yeah. who will eat food. Maybe they'll cook food, but they're not gonna eat it for the camera and and enjoy it. Yeah, obviously this is really harmful, right? Because it normalizes the idea that fat people just should never eat. There's this idea, right? Like I was talking to a friend about this the other day and we were talking about, um, you know, the, the meme or sort of the, like the archetype of the voracious fat person who just never, ever, ever, ever stops eating. They're just constantly eating every single time you look at them, they're eating every single time you talk to them, they're talking about eating. And you see this, it's a very, very common trope in shows. Like I'm rewatching the office and it's like, Kevin is that, is that character. Right. And, but he, I've seen a version of, of Kevin a million times. Right. Um, but like, you know, that, that archetype and we, and we were talking about it and she was like, yeah, it's kind of like the welfare queen archetype. Like there, it, that person does not exist. It's like some, it's some kind of like really ridiculous amalgamation of like essentially bigotry. And, and I think like this, this is connected to the taboo of fat people ever eating because the presumption is that fat people are always eating and that fat people, even if they're, you know, if you can't visibly see them eating, then they're hiding their food. It goes back to surveillance and back to shame and back to like, you know, all of, all of the stuff we were talking about earlier, what that does, what like that ASMR, that kind of video, that, that trope of like only thin women or thin people eating is a way of signaling that when a thin person is eating, that's signaling to the viewer that it's a safe version of eating. Um, and, and when a fat person is eating, it is always a cautionary tale about how bad it is, that, how dangerous food is, and how you know, we could slip up and become that fat person who has this allegedly voracious appetite if we do not control ourselves. Um, and I think it goes back to the, the idea that like thin people are morally superior to fat people. And so we can trust that their plate of fries is accompanied with, you know, otherwise totally pristine behavior or something like that, you know? And so I think that there's just so much bigotry at work in all of it. And again, like when we talk about choice too, and the choices that people make, they're not vilified for those choices in the same way, right? And that seems like a really obvious observation, but I'm sure that you have been also the butt of a lot of diminishment because of choices that you make or perceived choices that the other pre the people who are making those would probably make those same choices. <laughs> they just don't look like you. And like that's yes. that's just this weird, awful double standard. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think also like it goes back to dehumanization and this really intense way in the sense that like fat people because we're considered morally inferior we are not supposed to have joy 
like we're not supposed to enjoy anything, right? Because we're, supp we're supposed to be dedicating every single ounce of energy into trying to become thin people, like the morally correct version of ourselves. Um, and, uh, and I think like that really shows in, in food media where it's like the thin person has quote unquote, like earned that place of being able to enjoy French fries. And the fat person has not morally reached that point yet. Right. And, and I think that, that that's so utterly and horribly um, dehumanizing right on every level, like the idea that a fat person should and can become a thin person um, and can stay a thin person, uh, even if they do eventually like become a smaller person that they can stay that size. It just like it just the, the, the numbers don't add up. Right. Like one of the statistics that I that I find really compelling is that the chances of a, of a woman who's classified as, you know, quote unquote, obese becoming a quote unquote normal weight uh, and staying that weight is less than 1%. Um, and that's looking at like, that's a meta study. It's a meta analysis looking at like every other study on this. So it's pretty compelling. And, and yet we kind of, I mean, it goes back to the theme of individualism and, and kind of like exceptionalism where it's like, doesn't matter what the data say. It doesn't matter what the statistics say. What matters is that you have the willpower to become that 0.08%, you know? And it's like, it doesn't matter that it defies logic. <laughs> what matters is that you try. You know, you have to keep trying and kill yourself trying, you know? Right. No, it's a lot like how in America we call everyone embarrassed millionaires, right? Temporarily embarrassed millionaires. Like we're on, we're, we could be millionaires if we try really, really hard. <laughs> yes. Yes. So my last question in this very fascinating interview that I really wish would not end is actually about your book. I guess the book that just came out, The Self-Love Revolution, and it's aimed towards teen girls, right? I think especially teen girls of color. And I would love to hear from you just do you have hope for Gen Z? Do you have hope for the future? And have you been having and hearing better conversations about the body and about eating with that generation? I have so much hope that there are moments where I have almost like a, a prescient, almost like a future sense of regret. Like I can kind of imagine myself being 60 and seeing all these like post-gender fat babes wearing like tube tops and bike shorts and, and like, you know, processing their feelings and doing tarot. And I'm just like, oh man, like, I I can imagine being like my older self and being like, wow, I'm so glad that they have that. And also, dang, I wish I were 20 right now. Like I, I have that much hope, that much hope that I'm like already <laughs> regretting a future version of myself from looking at society and being like, uh, if only I were 20 and like just starting to hook up or whatever, what, a, what a delight it would be. Um, so I, I mean, yeah, I absolutely have hope for Gen Z. And I think like when I think about the, the book, like one of the things I was really careful about was trying not to be prescriptive. I mean, I really wanted to encourage the reader. And one of the things I say in the introduction is I'm like, Anybody who tells you that the world works the way that it works right now is a liar. They're wrong. Um, like you don't have to believe them and you can build whatever you want. Um, because I do think of, you know, girls and girls of color in particular. And yeah, the book is, is specifically directed at girls of color um, and written for them. I do see girls as the architects of the future. And I feel like they're, like they're giving me a glimpse into, into our future as a culture. 
that is, I think, a really great note to end on. Thank you so much. Thank you. So as we conclude this interview, I also wanted to talk about this recent story about weight that really freaked me out. And a lot of people that I knew in the industry were so, they applauded this story, which I found really surprising. Um, I feel like many of us grapple with these issues all the time and try to be really conscious about these issues. But at the same time, we, we fail in a lot of ways, too. So there's a recent Medium post by a former food editor named Kevin Pang, and it talks about how he had to quit working in food media because he was getting really fat. I was like, okay, like, that's an interesting premise. But then the whole story is about how just how he makes it happen, right? He like loses weight and he he signs up with a personal trainer who makes him eat toast and egg whites for breakfast and dinner every day and take photos of his food and like sends the trainer his weight every day. And to me, that just sounded totally bonkers. I don't know. I felt like, why is everyone so happy about this story? Because in the end, like, he loses the weight and then he he, he gets a job in food media again. It's like a perfect, you know, narrative. But it also is so messed up. I mean, it kind of shows you that people, what are you rooting for in this moment, right? Like, I don't think people, re- screw this. We got to read it. We got to read parts of this. Hold on. <laughs> At night, I lie on my couch moaning, I'm so hungry. The words weakly dribbling from my lips. My wife felt so guilty she had to eat oatmeal raisin cookies out of view. Actually, it wasn't hunger. I was in a constant state of unfulfilled satiation. Like people with phantom limbs who can't scratch away the itch. Looking for anything to fill the vacuum, I turned to something I never did in 15 years of food writing. Watch cooking videos on YouTube. What the hell? What is this? Right? I mean, he's miserable. And I understand, right? Like, he lost control over his life, in a sense, right? But, like, I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> like, it sounded like he had, you know, disordered eating before, and he continued to have disordered eating later, but just at the behest of a personal trainer. And I hate to psychoanalyze somebody like that, but it doesn't feel healthy. It doesn't feel good. I don't want to read it. It makes me feel horrible. Yeah. For this person. I think people go into this like they'll see the headline and already know what their reaction is going to be at the end of it. They'll be like, yeah, I'm going to applaud him, man. It's amazing. Like the personal trader, all this journey. And other people might take a more nuanced approach to it. But I think most people don't think the same way after they read it. Right. And also he spent like $1,500 a month on this personal trainer. Not everyone can do this. I mean, isn't that just the thing you're supposed to do, right? Like, you know drop that 1500 bucks and I don't know. It's that simple, isn't it? It's that simple. It reminds me of, um, you know, the comedian Kumail Nanjiani? Yep. So he was cast in a Marvel film, right? And I think it was, gosh, Men's Health or Esquire or one of those yep. man magazines yep, yep, that yep. published a like topless photo of him like all beefed up yeah right um and he he wrote about it and he said you know you don't get this body from exercising you spend money yeah you like change your life you're miserable you hate yourself and i think that was really important for him to point out too it's just like this is this is just like someone bought something you know that's it and i don't want to downplay like how hard it must have been for him but at the same time like this is not a story for anyone to be inspired by. 
individual stories aside, like this person, he will be a gatekeeper. He will be an editor at food magazines. And like we said, like we have a responsibility in the food media to write about all of this stuff responsibly and with kindness towards people who look a lot of different ways, right? Um, and that's the part that worries me. I 100% agree. So that's all we have for today's episode. Thanks again to Virgie Tovar for being in conversation with us. If you liked this episode, please share it with a friend and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts. And remember to send us any questions or voice memos you may have about food, life, or anything else for our Dear Spicy advice segment at extraspicy at sfchronicle.com. Thanks for listening. Extra Spicy is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Erica Carlos is the producer of the show. If you like the Extra Spicy podcast, subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find me, Soleil on Twitter at H-O-O-L-E-I-L. And me, Justin Phillips, at Just Mr. Phillips. You can support Extra Spicy and great journalism by signing up for a San Francisco Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod.